Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon Burkhead. This podcast is for those interested in the intersection of virtual reality, augmented reality, and mental health. You'll notice I'm not doing an intro and outro music today because this will be the longest episode I'm going to be creating, and it'll also be the last for a period of time as I'm about to head into starting my residency at John Hopkins Psychiatry. This episode is for those who would like to work on VR programs that are individualized for each patient by leveraging AI in the development process. I'll have some information for those who want to get involved to use a resource that you can help build the future today in your own lab or wherever you're doing research. I have a few disclaimers. The Immersive Psychiatry Podcast is not meant to be medical advice. Talk to your doctor before using VR as part of your treatment. I do not have a financial stake in any of the companies discussed in this episode at the time of publication. I'm also not a board certified psychiatrist. As I said, I'm starting residency literally in a few days, but I have been a VR researcher for the last five years, so Essentially, these last few episodes are just you getting my two cents on a few topics I think that are interesting or that I've worked on a bit. There's also situations where virtual reality is not appropriate. If a person doesn't have basic necessities of life like food, shelter, clothing, anything that runs on electricity is not likely going to be the primary prescription. It's probably an effective public health system and meeting those basic needs and then building up from there. Also, there are situations that are too critical or acute for any type of cognitive intervention, whether that be a psychotherapy or a virtual reality-based program. So things like severe bipolar disease or a very acute case of psychosis, these are situations that require medication management as quickly and as effectively as possible. But outside of those situations, there may be times in the inpatient unit and on the outpatient unit where virtual reality could be of help in the future. We just have to study it to find out the evidence. This topic in particular is really the main reason I wanted to make a podcast. There are a few areas within the field of immersive therapeutics that I believe are essential for its future, but are complex enough that It would take a lifetime for one single lab or one single person to make any significant headway towards a solid foundation of evidence. Thus, the only way I can hope to see customized, individualized VR therapy in the clinic before I'm 40 is that at least five or six of you or some of my colleagues will end up using technology like this so that we can all work towards a body of evidence. For the researchers and startups that are actively applying for grants, I'll be referencing a new nonprofit AI research center with a program you can use to explore questions related to this episode. Just reach out to myself or the head of the center, Brian Dolan, on LinkedIn. The nonprofit research center that he's running is going to be called Institute for translational artificial intelligence and i'll have an interview with him during the podcast i'm actually going to split up our conversation in different areas if you've already developed a product like what i'll describe further on in the episode fantastic there are numerous ways to make something or to pull out information from a patient's interviewer to create a virtual world and we need to understand multiple different angles of achieving that If you're looking for clinical collaborators, depending on where your program is at in development, there might be a research lab that might be interested in exploring 
use or research studies for that particular program. Just reach out to me at some point via Twitter or LinkedIn. This episode can be broken down into about five parts. Part one is going to be really just a basic overview of a few terms, and that is precision medicine, personalized psychiatry, and the implications of where VR might be at in relation to these things, and personalized psychotherapy. Part two will cover an introduction to two different forms of psychiatric formulation, which is a way of describing a person from multiple variables. Part three, I'll discuss why a form of AI called natural language processing is important for the future of customized immersive therapeutics. And then in part four, I'll provide thoughts on how it could be combined with psychiatric formulation specifically to create these individualized programs. And then part five, I'll discuss limitations because any scientist should be able to tear down their own ideas at any given time. <laughs> it's just good practice. And, and then we'll just end it at that point. This is going to be a long episode, so bear with me if you're interested about going into this type of rabbit hole of an idea. Part one, the combination of data science-based modeling of clinical actions within healthcare has gone by several names. Precision medicine, personalized medicine, individualized medicine, those are used interchangeably at times within the literature. Precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment that considers individual variability in a patient's characteristics, things like genes, their environment, or lifestyle. It has the potential to contribute greatly to the future of healthcare by delivering the most efficient patient-centered care. The data used for it usually comes from biomarkers, processes related to the origin of the disease, or findings from other data-driven methods. These terms are often referenced towards programs that predict outcome or tailored treatments based on the patient's unique genetics. The majority of the papers started being published around the start of the Genome Project in the early 2000s and have increased since that time. Some of the best examples are the amazing results seen in oncology, where they're using molecular therapies to treat genetically profiled cancers. These tailored algorithms don't just run on genetics, though. There are several other omics out there, including radiomics for imaging, microbiomic, which is the bacteria in the gut, clinomics for the EMR data, along with others. How does this fit into psychiatry? Precision psychiatry has been talked about in a few settings. One notion is using an algorithm to predict the outcome of treatment or the treatment response. John Hopkins has done some great work in this area over the last 20 years on various genetic variables. Though there's been some great strides made in the genetics of mental health disorders, particularly in the last five years, some of the most impressive work has been on informatic data. Now, this type of data is mined from written text, either made by the patient in, say, social media or within the medical record. Or you could also add in things like wearable biometric data. Whether it comes from omic data or informatics, the goal of these algorithms is to generate multiple kinds of models. A diagnostic model would be for the probability of having a disease. A prognostic model is the probability of a future outcome. A predictive model would be a probability for the response to treatment. I'll have a link to a talk in the show notes by Dr. Peter Zandi at John Hopkins that discusses precision psychiatry in, in more detail. This work is being done by hospitals all across the world, though, and we will need it to solve the demand issue facing mental health. 
However, solving the greatest challenges facing mental health is for another whole set of episodes. I'm not going to talk about precision psychiatry as it's described in literature today. How does this relate to virtual reality? VR is an intervention that acts at the scale of the mind, unlike brain stimulation or drugs which act more neuronal levels across the whole brain. The main pillar of treatment that acts also at the scale of the mind is psychotherapy. We need to see if precision medicine is something being specifically discussed for that area if we're going to have hopes of doing something anywhere near precision VR therapy. Precision psychotherapy, when it comes to the literature specifically on personalized psychotherapy, just another term, there is quite a bit of work that still needs to be done. I'll have a recent paper in the show notes that describes several core research questions about the mechanism of psychotherapy that still needs to be understood before a precision psychotherapy approach can be generated. For the context of psychotherapy, we need to consider what works, for whom, and under which relational context, because it is a therapeutic alliance that is likely crucial in this interaction. In that paper, which was just published a few months ago in early 2021, the authors recommend a rigorous observational study design with some advanced survey methods to understand the timeline of influence between individual differences in, say, patient profile, therapeutic procedures, being a second category of variables. These are things that are specific psychotherapy techniques used at a given moment. Provider might use multiple different techniques in one one hour appointment to help guide that patient to a certain revelation or actually the third category, a therapy process. So therapy processes could be whether the patient had a cognitive change specific to that procedure or adopted the behavior specific to that behavioral procedure. You could assess some of the aspects of the therapy process through different types of questionnaires relating to working alliance. An example for this a therapeutic procedure is the, the therapist recommended a behavior checklist, assessing the behaviors you do in a day. The way you would measure that is, say, something like a, a recording of the therapeutic session, which would be reviewed by an outside reviewer. The therapy process variable would be, did that patient later on then even build a checklist or just not? And, and there you would need to do that probably through a questionnaire. So that's three categories. The fourth category is a clinical outcome. This would be where you would see clinical improvement in a symptom. And, and you've seen these in randomized control trials. It's, it's some type of validated survey for some type of uh, symptom. Once you have enough detail in all four of these categories, you can come up with potential causal pathways. And then you could run some nice randomized control trials to build the foundation of personalized psychotherapy with subgroups and specific therapeutic procedures. Without a solid knowledge of the mechanism for various psychotherapies, it might be a long time before personalized psychotherapy is done with traditional psychotherapy, let alone talking about something that's fairly sci-fi still at this point, which would be truly customized to the individual VR therapy practice. We just need several years of robust observational data. In that paper, they reference several different labs across the world that are doing these types of rigorous observational studies to build up the data for a causal pathway for psychotherapy. And then we would need another probably five years, but several years for randomized trials based on that initial data. With these glaring challenges, how are mental health providers able to provide care that is as tailored to the patient as possible over the last several decades. Part two, they use their training in something called psychiatric formulation, also known as a case formulation. This is a framework for understanding a patient as more than a diagnostic label, and you provide multiple factors to, to create this framework. 
you then are able to generate hypotheses about the origins of these causes of a patient's symptoms. This thought process is core to the training of a psychiatrist. The method that is taught by most psychiatry residency programs is called the biopsychosocial formulation. First described in 1980 by Dr. George Ingle, biopsychosocial formulation combines biological, psychological, and social factors to understand a patient and uses this to guide both treatment and prognosis. There's a nice grid I'll have a link to in the show notes that divides up a pretty good long list of questions one could ask from the biopsychosocial model into a three by four table. I'll go through that now. It's made from some great residents up in Canada. On the horizontal line, it's your biological, you have your psychological, and your social category. The social category will also include cultural aspects. On the vertical, you would have predisposing factors, precipitating factors, perpetuating factors, and protective factors. I'll go over each with a few examples. Predisposing factors are areas of vulnerability that increase the risk for the presenting problem that the patient has. You've written up your psychiatric evaluation, and in this large note, you're writing up chief complaint and a history of present illness. These types of variables that are predisposing would be things that are a risk factor for what the patient came in for. Many times these are things that happen somewhere between birth and early childhood, but that's not always the case. If you don't end up asking this or seeing this in your HPI, that they should all come up in the overall history within this evaluation. So for the biological category, things that are predisposing would be things like birth complications, genetics. For the psychological factors that are predisposing, these would be things like attachment style from a, a mother or parent as a child, the family structure in which you were raised in, and also maybe low self-esteem. For the social factors, you would have things like poverty, childhood trauma, racism, and, and then just overall like low socioeconomic status. For the precipitating factors, these are typically thought of as stressors or other events that may be precipitants of the symptoms that are within the HPI. These will directly impact the history of present illness and should probably be in there if you were able to get it during your one hour evaluation. So from the biological standpoint, these would be things like recent hormone changes, sleep deprivation for the recent past. Maybe they've started increasing their substance use. From a psychological standpoint, I find this an interesting way to organize things. They break it down based on a few different types of psychotherapies and their perspectives on different issues that can happen psychologically. So cognitive behavioral therapy would focus on cognitive distortions, a biased way of thinking about yourself or the world around you. Another form of psychotherapy is dialectic behavioral therapy. It's more focused on emotional dysregulation. Does the patient have some type of either poor ability to manage emotional responses or to keep them within an acceptable range of a typical emotional reaction. Grief is more from the standpoint of interpersonal therapy. So this is one where you might have either grief from a loss of a relationship that's close to you, but in this therapy, you also challenge the roles that you play within your relationships. And last but not least, psychodynamic therapy is more focused on 
unconscious conflict. So ways in which past experiences, relationships may be shaping your present situation. The social factors for that could be precipitating some symptoms that the patient's having could be recent immigration, which can be quite stressful. Family issues that could be more recent, a recent trauma, and maybe the recent loss of a home. For perpetuating factors, these are things that are conditions that the patient, maybe the family or the community or just a larger system around that patient is exacerbating rather than solving a problem. These would be long-standing variables, things that would be going on for years. From a biological standpoint, chronic disease, potentially the degree of the symptoms if it's a chronic mental health issue, and also cognitive deficits. The psychological concerns that are perpetuating factors would be things that are just like the chronic version of what we just talked about in the other category. There's also things like their personality type and then also the patient's immature defense mechanisms. The social ones would be dangerous neighborhood, transgenerational problems. The fourth and final category is the protective factors. These include the patient's own areas of competency, their skills, their talents, their interests, and supportive elements. These counter the other three categories. From a biological standpoint, if a patient comes in, has overall good personal health, no other chronic diseases, family histories essentially has no significant findings, that's very protective to just have one thing that they're presenting with. From the psychological factors, these would be things like if the patient's able to be reflective or to be able to even mentalize their own behaviors, having a positive sense of self, having a set of mature defense mechanisms. From a social standpoint, if they have good financial support, has a healthcare team that's able to take care of them, has been taking care of them, and then positive relationships in their life. If you want, because you might just love structure, you could actually separate out the culturally relevant portions from the social column, then you would really have a four by four table. I apologize for torturing you. The reason why I go through all this is I do think that this type of formulation is great diagnostic tool, given that it is fairly exhaustive in its attempt to understand multiple aspects of a patient. But in my opinion, I do think there's a better model for making specifically an individualized immersive therapy program, something with a structure that lends itself to a therapeutic framework for building something. However, that being said, for all the other psychiatrists in the world that could be listening and you come from a different institution than John Hopkins, I would love to see your version of individualized VR therapy using the biopsychosocial model. Before my psychiatry interview at John Hopkins, I was sent a paper from my soon-to-be program director, Dr. Redgrave. It discussed a unique kind of psychiatric formulation that was created in the department. It described four perspectives that one could assess the patient. The book on this is called The Perspectives of Psychiatry. It was written by Dr. McHugh and Dr. Slavny in 1998. This approach presumes that different psychiatric disorders have different natures. So schizophrenia and anorexia are fundamentally different in their origins. Even if at this point in time we don't exactly know the origin, you can tell that there's probably apples and oranges. I'll have links in the show notes to a paper on this topic for those that don't want to buy the book, but I recommend both. I'll go through each and then in part four, I'll explain why this is useful for developing a VR program. The first perspective is the life story. This describes the sequence of events occurring in the setting 
of a patient's life that produce psychological or behavioral outcomes. Life stories help us understand the consequences of what the patient encounters. These may prompt an individual to seek psychiatric attention because of things like grief, frustration, disconnection, anger, guilt, and shame. This is why bereavement, or grief from the loss of partner, is a good example for this category, as well as PTSD. The goal for this perspective is to re-script the narrative to give the patient a sense of mastery. This is a difficult thing to do. You have to be able to help that patient better understand the situation and provide a response that would be a relief or to prevent that mindset that it has led to. In this process, you have to be thoughtful because you have to remember that the patient has certain defense mechanisms and they are in place for a reason. All types of interpretations that you could be making could be considered hostile and could be cause emotional harm to the patient. All right, now moving on to the second perspective. The dimensional perspective focuses on an individual's psychological variables that are universal, measurable, and graded. So you have things like cognition or their IQ and temperament, which you could think of things like the big five personality test that has the most largest body of evidence for a personality test that's used in a clinical setting. The dimensional perspective looks at potentials, which you could define as where a particular individual stands on a relevant dimension. These potentials can be vulnerabilities in certain situations. So in those situations, you, there is a provocation, the specific circumstances in which that person is a poor fit, and then a response, a specific behavior or feeling that results from that poor fit. The goal of this perspective is to guide your patient towards success based on the kind of person he or she is. The guidance may take many different forms. You may be providing education to the family who is going to be supporting that individual or be a part of that individual's life. The patient may need education about what you're finding out about their personality or different variables about them. You may help them with employment skills, rehabilitation of living life with these types of variables how to anticipate challenges, because there always will be challenges in their life, how to manage them through things like coping skills, and if needed, just to avoid specific circumstances. An example of this would be things like intellectual disability, which can cause issues when they're in a stressful environment. This perspective was not taught to me in med school or my two previous years of residency before I did full-time VR research. I'm interested to see how John Hopkins psychiatrists decide on maybe some practical questions to ask in a busy practice, as well as to guide patients on their own dimensions. There's a slew of papers that show how different personality domains are in the big five. There's neuroticism, agreeableness, openness, consciousness, extroversion, with highs and lows to each. I won't go into every facet, but it's an interesting area where you could tease down specific variables, particularly if you're going to use formulation for just predicting a treatment outcome. The third perspective is the behavior perspective. Behaviors are goal-directed actions. This perspective seeks to identify and explain disorders of individual choice. In a conceptual model, you can start with drive. Drive is a process within the brain that dominates the other thoughts, like a maladaptive hunger that can be as powerful as the hunger for food. There are multiple kinds of drives out there. They can be broken down roughly into three groups. You have innate drives that are fundamental functions of life. So things like certain types of sleeping disorders, eating disorders, and paraphilias or certain types of sexual disorders. The second set of disorders involve acquired drives. So substance use disorder, kleptomania, 
pathological gambling, pyromania. The third disorder provoked are usually provoked by social attitude towards either some type of assumption or overvalued idea or your search for a role in, in society. So these would be things like conversion disorder, self-cutting, or compulsive crime. Drive does this by producing an attitude that influences perceptions and decisions. However, this process alone does not account for the choices made by the patient. There are multiple factors that are play outside of the behavioral perspective, such as the diseases they may have, genetic variabilities, dimensional aspects, so things like impulsivity being a facet of neuroticism, and their life story. After acting on that drive, there is sadly a feeling that reinforces the whole process. This is called conditioned learning. There are multiple frameworks for conditioned learning, and I'm not going to get into it today. This perspective, though, applies to psychiatric illnesses that are characterized by what the patient does. Though good examples of this be substance use disorder or eating disorders, probably the largest volume of all those different drives I just talked about. The treatment goal here is to interrupt the behavior. The final perspective is the disease perspective. First, define the clinical syndrome. It's a cluster of signs, symptoms over the course of time. This would hopefully help researchers in finding the abnormality in the structure or function of the brain expressed in the development of that syndrome. Once the pathology is able to be tied to the syndrome, the hope is that you would find the etiology of the origin of that disease. Some mental disorders are a direct conscious expression of a disease process that's damaged or you have disrupted the neural integrity of the brain, hence identification by the perspective of a disease. This applies to psychiatric conditions that a patient has. And the key examples that they give in the book would be things like schizophrenia and dementia or delirium would be another one and bipolar disorder as well. The treatment goal and hope is to cure the disease. And there are a few cases where you, they have found cures. So niacin deficiency can lead to dementia. The risk of psychosis among individuals infected with syphilis. And hopefully there are going to be more breakthroughs, particularly around bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, that illuminate those disorders and their cures. There's a reason I said hope several times. I said hope because the causal process for most psychiatric conditions are still unknown. Maybe someday the pathology and etiology of all psychiatric illnesses will be understood. The, the best goal is usually to achieve, achieve remission of symptoms, or at least decrease the burden of symptoms. DSM-5, or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, that book was quite helpful. It provides distinct categories of psychiatric conditions, basing things off of a clinical syndrome, a cluster of signs and symptoms over a course of time. This did allow researchers to reliably study similar groups of patients, which has led to numerous advances in the treatment. In addition, the DSM provided terminology that any clinician could use to describe symptoms displayed by a patient and assign them a diagnosis based on what they see. However, Disorder of mental health and behavior does not occur in, in a vacuum. It's also the fact that there's so much heterogeneity between outcomes as well as the symptomatology that multiple diseases have within the DSM. There are several other ways to formulate or organize your thoughts around a patient, which we need 
given this heterogeneity of treatment response across numerous mental illnesses, we could be missing the mark. I have no idea what the DSM-6 will look like, but I'm excited to see how it moves the field forward. Part three, we're moving along. Let's dig into why this is of any use to the field of immersive therapeutics. With the current trajectory that VR therapy is on, over the next several years, we'll hopefully see numerous VR therapy programs for a variety of diagnoses, demonstrate efficacy, and some really sizable clinical trials. As has been requested by several researchers in the field, we will someday have a VR, AR, MR immersive therapy pharmacy, where the provider and the patient can select from a library of evidence based programs to match the list of diagnoses in addition to the other traditional pillars of treatment like pharmacological treatments, brain stimulation treatments, and traditional psychotherapies. Given that many of these programs are being developed to be self-administered at home, they will hopefully provide some benefit to a large portion of patients in society with a specific disease, which is desperately needed given the amount of untreated illness that we have in the U.S. and abroad. So there are two reasons I can think of right now that an individualized VR therapy program would be of added benefit for something that is custom for each patient. The first is there are specific diseases that sadly could be caused by an endless variety of traumatic events. There likely isn't a successful treatment out there for PTSD that does not include some amount of reflection on that specific trauma, whether that be just exposure itself or you're rescripting it most of the different forms of psychotherapy that relate to PTSD does have the trauma in some part of focus at some point in the therapeutic alliance. I haven't seen a startup yet that can provide a unique life story for each patient, but I have seen lots of robust research using VR, but it's around a very specific type of exposure for a subcategory of people. So combat veterans for, say, an explosion which you could use for that population, or when 9-11 happened and we could have a flight simulator. But if you take something like sexual trauma or childhood trauma, all the different ways that someone could get damaged, it's so much that could be the reason, that could be a part of that life story arc. The second reason that I could see this being of use in the future is that psychiatric patients frequently have comorbid diseases that can influence each other. And as we've seen with the formulation, there's multiple factors that can contribute. A portion of the patients that are readmitted numerous times or the ones that have very long stays in the psychiatric hospitals have comorbid diseases. And there's even ones, somewhat maybe I could put back into the first reason is there's ones like we'll talk about in a little bit, the behavioral perspective of substance use disorder, where it's so heavily influenced by outside environmental issues. If you saw a classic case of schizophrenia and the influence of outside environments on it versus the textbook case of substance use disorder, the amount that the outside environment or the social environment that that disease is in is much more heavily influenced in the substance use versus schizophrenia. Both are, both are important. To be able to use VR on patients with the most complex situations it would be ideal for the program to factor in variables that are unique to them instead of a set of VR programs that would be done in parallel. Again, this is just my hypothesis. VR startups are developing aspects of customization to their products. They're adding 
levels of intensity, variety of content, more content to be able to provide essentially what would be a parallel to what's done in psychotherapy as far as the amount of content over time to, to train or to change the uh, maladaptive program in the mind. They also have customizations. They'll have customized avatars. They can have customized environments. There are a few startups that are developing their own AI program like we'll discuss soon. It's more of a long-term goal for the most part in that they're not necessarily ready for prime time right now, but it's on the long-term product development arc for several startups. The reason why I believe it's important for me to share this information today about this particular research opportunity is that in 2021, there's really not many resources that are out there to get involved in this type of research. And I, I want you to be able to explore questions. Like I said, my goal in all this, I want this in the clinic by 2040 because I want this in my practice. And I think we could all help each other. It is extremely challenging to build something so complex that encapsulates the variability seen in the population. From a pilot study standpoint, an agile team can make something custom for each patient, right? You got what, 19 patients, 20 patients in your study, maybe 30, make something custom for each one. That'd be sweet. I've cited papers like that. I love VR one papers, which is naming for some of these developmental studies. However, at a larger scale, deploying a custom VR program for each patient can get quite expensive with a team of developers and designers needed for each major iteration. So the reason why it's so hard to make VR at scale, good VR, a very high quality VR program that you can feel comfortable sending to a patient's home, there are countless ways that a VR designer could choose to make a 3D object. So whatever they got to make, all the different variations and ways in which you could create that and make that what it needs to be based off of the patient's feedback or whatever developmental study or whatever the team's uh, insights are, it's endless. And that's why you need a creative uh, individual and highly skilled. The same goes for these developers and engineers. They have countless decisions to make, potentially, or could be if you were to number each and every step that a developer or an engineer has at a given stage. Even from just like the get-go, you've got to pick the correct settings for the VR engine that you're going to use. Don't even get me started with version control. I'm sure there's developers that are rolling their eyes at how much headache that can have. How many different programs you're going to be using to have to create your VR program. So the settings of those, even when you get to actually working on the development process, what type of navigational mapping are you going to use? What type of code are you going to use to cause the interactions you need between assets? And then just compiling this all together and hoping there's no bugs, which is like the life having to, to maintain these things. Why we need AI is we need to decrease the amount of time needed to make a great custom VR program. In general, something that's really high quality does take about three months, four months for even just to get a pilot out. It really is about three, four months to get a VR program. From a clinical standpoint, that's not going to be great because going from an empty scene to a program ready to go, it's not at a reasonable speed for a high volume psychiatric clinic. You'll have a new patient. You might have a few new patients every day. Some of these patients might not might not be your patient for that long. They're going to, they're going to be there for a short period of time. They may drop out and, and just imagine you got patients and they've dropped out of your clinic and, and what you built a custom program for them. So that's a challenge. The light. These challenges grow in scale as you attempt to try to make something custom for a whole health system or something even larger. I can think of three different types of programs that you might need 
in the process of making something that is AI-assisted development. I'm going to have a short bit of the conversation I had with Brian Dolan. I'm going to start with a program that we've been talking about on and off now for a couple years, and then I'll get into the other sections or the other potential categories of AI programs. I called this category the assembly programs. We, we will need programs to help organize 3D content within a scene and potentially help with the coding of what happens between them. This episode will focus on the use of natural language processing to translate medical text using a virtual asset management system. For, for an AI program to be of most use to mental health, it must leverage a specific type of data that alone makes up the majority of clinical decisions. And that is language. Language is the way humans communicate their internal mental state. Body language, physical signs, and biometric data do play a role and are going to likely increase in clinical utility over time. But let's be honest, a majority of clinical decisions within psychiatry are made based on what is said or not said within an evaluation, at least as of 2021. This is where Brian Dolan comes in. He is a math wizard. I met at a startup incubator event back in 2019. He created this great patient cohort engine, search engine called Deep Six, that uses advanced natural language processing to search open text notes in the EMR. When we first met, he described a program he created called the E9000 for malpractice lawsuits cases for, for surgeries. It was a program that you could take a surgical note and put it into a virtual scene within these virtual reality building programs, particularly Unity. This thing not only tagged the anatomically correct words in the paragraph that was copied and pasted into it, it also put those 3D objects into the scene, and it also created code for the kind of surgical cut described in the surgical note. All this in a few minutes after copying and pasting it into an open text box. To say the least, I was impressed. Though this could no doubt help a jury understand what went wrong in a surgery, I told him that this could help solve much, much bigger challenges that we are faced. Over the last two years, we've talked on and off about a few different ways that this could be used in mental health. All right, so I'm going to switch now over to my conversation with Brian Dolan, who I think will help characterize this assembly program. What's your thoughts on what you would say to, to researchers for E9000? That's a good question. That's pretty open-ended. What we're trying to accomplish with the tool is to make things like virtual therapeutics an actual care of. And that way, people can use it to actually treat patients as opposed to use it as a tool or a gimmick. And the big thing that is preventing them from doing that is, is that the tooling isn't there for a therapist to be able to create these virtual environments and these virtual experiences. And psychiatry and psychology and, and you know psych- psychological interventions are all about experiential discussions, experiential treatments. When actual physicians or caregivers can participate in that, they'll be able to explore what else can be done. It'll start off with the things that we've seen so far, like post-traumatic stress disorder or other anxiety disorders. Those things will quickly lead to much more complicated aspects and kinds of therapies that we can deliver virtually. That's awesome. And for the researchers, the question might come up about how is it that NLP or natural language processing assisted asset management, how this decreases time, how does this improve the process? 
This use of natural language is becoming more and more pervasive. The one I see is particularly in medicine. To talk about clinical care in language has a lot of momentum and it's very doable. The technology has been progressing for a long time. I've worked with several companies that have used natural language in the medical field to great effect. There's no need to try to force everything into a structured database the way I think the EHRs are currently trying to force you to do. So then that comes down, in my opinion, one of the most subtle forms of care, and that is psychological and psychiatric care. I'm not a deep expert on that, but as I read through the literature and I read through the research questions, they're very subtle questions. As these researchers are attempting to provide care or attempting to do research, they should be talking about it in their own voice and that we should be moving from their voice to the technology rather than trying to force them into the technology. That led us as NLP guys to start saying we can understand what they're saying in language to some degree. It's not perfect, nothing is, but we can use their language when they describe a scene or in an anxiety or some other intervention they want to have happen. We can use their natural language to create assets and create environments within a virtual reality that they can use for therapy. It's a big shift from having them have to create a bespoke sort of game every time they want to create a new therapy. You look at games right now, and it takes years to get a game off the shelf. Even a simple environment that is workable with the Department of Defense, some of the things you've looked at there, takes three to four months to construct. But they're constructing things that I think are so repeatable and so manageable that if we were able to manage those assets, um, we can make it a lot faster. And I could say things like when speaking to a heroin addict, that the addict could tell us things about the environment in which they used to shoot. And we can reconstruct that environment so that they can have exposure therapy. They mentioned a pizza box. We can put a pizza box in the room. They mentioned that there were certain aspects to the environment, we can recreate those things and allow that therapist to think about the narrative that is happening in the environment rather than the actual objects and nouns or fields in the EHR. We want them to think in terms of the story and the arc of the patient care. And we will take those assets and try to construct as best we can, as opposed to having them have send out to create a custom environment every single time. We, in our early prototypes, we've been able to construct these things in under an hour. I want wow. to do a lot more. I want to get better. But in, within an hour, you can create a scene for somebody, a basic scene for somebody to have an experience with him. I think that's a market improvement over three to four months. <laughs> that's amazing. The possibilities of that from a lot of standpoints is game changing. And it even got me thinking, Frank, I've been debating in my head the last two days about the challenges mm-hmm. of content generation. I thought of a potential solution while you were talking, given that the program is creating labels, researchers need to know all the exact assets they could have their test bed questions similar to what they're interested in exploring and then have the program creating labels for potential assets. And then you could have researchers review those. If there is an asset out there that is similar enough that the researchers agree, this is good for what we want to do. It's it's a two-step process, but you also are taking out the challenge that I saw, which is there might be times where researchers may not yet know what are those assets or that exact list of assets, but I know I want to explore this so they could come get labeling, and then come back a second time or even that same session and have a compiled uh, scene with the second meeting. Yeah, I think that you're touching, uh, that inspires two thoughts. I think you're absolutely right exploiting the labeling. I think that there are two other things that are interesting in this space. And the first is there's this wave of the digital twin that is out there nowadays. 
where the digital twin is, is something that's being pushed by Dell and Intel and Microsoft and AutoCAD, libraries of assets that people can use that have telemetric approaches. And you can, you can basically create a, a table or a turbine that can be reused in multiple environments, and it's already been wired up, so to speak. So when those things are being generated by industry, hundreds of millions of these things are being generated by industry, or at least one other company that's generating these things, those should be available to the researchers. There's no reason that if I create a pizza box in virtual reality, that it shouldn't become part of a therapy asset library that people could explore. And there's lots of companies out there, including Microsoft, who's very interested in this metaverse idea, who are trying to, who are trying to become that central repository of assets. We at the Institute are not trying to become that central repository, but we want to be able to point them to you and say, point them out to you and say, for medical assets, this is where you should go look. And I think that having access to those assets is something researchers don't have right now. They don't know where to go get a pizza box or a rag doll in the shape of a shady figure in the corner or even how to put that in. So I think that's one thing. I think the central assets labeled and described medically is something that's extremely feasible right now. It just requires a little bit of coordination and should be available to researchers. The other thing um, it's very different though is as you said the labeling well that's because of the the sort of vagaries of language but yes. they play into our it's a strength in this case with certain domains you can describe exactly what you want but in medicine that's hardly ever true because there's just so much we just don't know so when i'm describing the vagaries of somebody's condition or disposition there are a lot of things that can satisfy that need so it's not like looking one thing up in a database if i say even to to the surprise of it, people not in our space even if i say scalpel that can have that can translate into hundreds of different apps in, in operating room setting because they have different uses, they have different types. So that vagary of language is extremely important when you're trying to describe trying to describe the actual arc of therapy. Using the natural language as a way to convey that vagueness and then resolving that with a library of assets is challenging, but it's being done in many domains. And we've done it in, in a couple of different other domains, including medical, including national intelligence. Leveraging the vagaries of language into better knowledge is actually a pretty useful and tricky way to use things. Yeah. But researchers have access to that and use the fact that they're thinking through the problem right now as an asset rather than a limitation because they don't know what the exact database query is. That makes sense. All right. We are back and love this conversation with Brian. I was able to think of something while we were in it, which will lead to this next section. And that is, so the second category of AI programs that we might need is what we go into category of content generation. And the reason why we need this, there's things that in the note, you'll be able to get objects that I, I do believe that the AI program would be able to label and then you could go and find out if those objects are out there. You may ultimately still need to work with either a startup or your academic team. If you have a developer group at, at your academic center, you could create some things. But again, these are mostly objects that I think you're going to be finding. You're not going to find objects that are people, right? So the patient themselves or the people in your, the participants in your clinical trial, they're not going to be in some library right? I, I don't, there's not a library out there in the world that has volumetric images of people. It may not have volumetric images of even all the places, right? Someday we will have that probably after augmented reality headsets are out. Pretty much the whole world will have a volumetric image, uh, a map of the metaverse, if you will, our real world. But that's a long ways away. 
So how do we cross that hurdle of content generation that's personalized? In psychiatry, the most personal thing, the most important thing is from a VR standpoint would be you, your body, the people in your life, who you interact with, their body. Our mind has a version of everything that's important to your life in, in the mind's eye. We need to get around that. So the content generation is an area of work that generates content using AI. We'll need programs that can generate content. A couple different places. So how do you make content? So there's usually a VR developer who's going to make something from scratch. So that's the first category is a skilled VR designer makes something, most likely from scratch, or they modify something from a library. So human makes the content. The second category, which would be, we could someday have an AI program who could make something from scratch. I have not seen a paper that can do it straight from scratch. It's usually given some type of, and I, when I say from scratch for an AI program, I would say if you were to type a sentence and then the program would make something. So an NLP, a natural language processing program that would say, I have a red ball and then it makes a red ball. That's great. But right now it's more of a search function. I have a red ball. It will then search in some type of query for a red ball that has also been tagged red ball. So it would be really impressive to someday see an AI program that can you can just say, I have a red ball and it literally makes one. But that's pretty far-fetched, pretty hard to do. So let's talk about things that would be more realistic. The third category would be having an AI program build something, but instead of from something with relatively little data, you would have something that is traditional 2D or traditional media that helps assist in the process of the AI making the 3D object you need. You can take pictures of yourself and that one picture can be made into a 3D person. They're usually static. They don't usually move around and probably don't move around very well, but it's at least there. Again, we can probably move them around like toys on a table. There's also video. So if you have video content, what's nice is you can actually, you can gauge gait and movement through that. There has been research on getting virtual avatar movement from video. Going back to the first category of a human building your 3D object, what's most commonly used are the use specific types of 3D creation programs like Blender or Maya that will have AI tools integrated within them. Even these virtual reality game engines like Unity or Unreal have a ton of artificial intelligence built in and will likely continue to be the evolution of the field. I just don't know. I don't necessarily believe that Unity or Unreal will make something that is specific enough for psychiatry that we still have to consider what needs to be built within this field, but there will have tools that will overall improve or decrease the time it takes to build something. Let's be honest, pictures and videos are great, and that's a great option for building customized VR worlds, but if someone, let's say this is PTSD, the person or place or thing that caused that trauma may not be something you're gonna have a picture or video of. You may not be Facebook friends with the person that is the perpetrator of the worst day of your life, in which case you would need to work with VR designers, which is why I am a big proponent, even though I'm talking about AI and some people might say, you're gonna take away our jobs. We will need more VR designers and engineers, developers, technologists in the future. So within this category of virtual content, we'll need virtual humans, we'll need objects, we'll need virtual environments. Within the computer science literature field, there is an area of it that is called procedural content generation. These in general are being used for things 
often for like games. So things like Minecraft or World of Warcraft, where you would have these block worlds that can be randomly generating different types of shapes of blocks, as well as randomly generating different types of maps, different types of objectives, different enemies. And this can be great for a VR therapy game where you need to have variety, but it, it, it would not be useful for individualized therapy programs that we'll discuss in the next section. I'll have a few links to programs that are currently being added to VR programs. So things like, again, generating custom avatar, great. I think that's very useful for psychiatry. If you, technologists who may be listening, it would be great if you would build something that would build content that is specific to humans. Some of these challenges have already been solved, and I'll have some links to that. So the last category that we're going to need, the third program, is going to be specific to an area of research called virtual humans. So virtual humans will be needed down the line for individualized VR therapy. It's not required right now, but this is how the patient would seem individual to move or how they would expect them to interact with the world. This is a very difficult area of research. Thankfully, my colleagues at USC, at the Institute for Creative Technology, have specialized in virtual humans for over a decade. So again, Skip Rizzo and Arno Harthalt have a great paper for virtual human that is created an occupational interview for those with autism using mixed reality headset. It's a pretty awesome paper, highly recommend it. It will be in the show notes. There's also, if you wanted to see how far the rabbit hole goes for virtual human research, the brilliant leader in this field is Michael Black at the Max Planck Institute. I think we'll see as I get older in the field of immersive therapeutics, but it's a bit of a long way to go. The reason why it's the future is there's things that are that the patient likely, you're not going to get from the text, and you're going to have to either ask more questions. It's also, it's so hard to do right now. You have a virtual human, and they can look really creepy, which is why there's only some places in the world that are really specialized in virtual humans. There are numerous variables to explore in this type of programming. People in the patient's life sound like, what they look like, how they walk, what kinds of things are important to the scene. Hopefully, it does not require them to feel a specific type of carpet, such as what we've seen in Inception. Otherwise, I'll be quite old before we see something that has great haptics. It's just it's a slow burn, haptics, haptic technology, touch. I'm not going to dig into the specific research related to virtual humans in this episode. That's a subject that's so complex, it would take several episodes to finish. And I'm just going to stick to mostly the assembly program with the natural language process. And, and that's it. Just a quick disclaimer, if anyone's working in the area of virtual humans, I think that's great. We need it. And there's definitely some research applications we could discuss at another time. All right, let's go into part four. How do I think about the perspective style of formulation and how that relates to virtual simulations? Start off with a life story perspective. The life story perspective is the main reason that it is useful for VR therapy, quite honestly. But having this be the first, by having this be the first perspective you consider, it ensures you never forget to consider the context that the patient is in. For, the, for a digital media that is 3D, a recreation of even a portion 
of a life's of a patient's life story can be a great setting to deliver therapy for any of the other perspectives. I will spend the majority of this podcast on this one, given its importance. The example use cases for this perspective will be PTSD and complicated grief, which is a specific kind of bereavement. Only about 7% of patients will have complicated grief. The nature of the life story perspective fits well with the development process of a VR program. When you develop a VR program, you have to think of the literal virtual setting. You also have to decide on the 3D objects. You also have to code is for each of the interactions that will happen to map out the navigations for the characters in the game, which makes up the sequences of the life story. This leads me to my first research question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put research questions all throughout this that you can use them as jumping off points for your own studies. Well, the first research question would be how much of the 3D content of the virtual scene is needed to be individualized based on the patient's own life in order to see improvements compared to a generic scene with a generally similar series of events. This is what we actually discussed in my conversation with Brian Dolan. Could you talk a little bit about in the case of psychiatry, someone's like life story. Let's say this was PTSD and it was a car accident. Do you think if the research group knew there were certain things that they wanted to consider, is that something 9000 could help with? It's definitely an evolving field of how to translate any sort of text into an action or a scene. In medicine right now, on the digital side, there's so much talk still about the longitudinal patient record. Like people don't have a sense of how people are evolving and changing over time. And that's true for your medications, as well as your psychological state. And was there an event in your past, either your leg was broken, or maybe you were traumatized by an event. So those longitudinal records and the narrative of the person is always going to be vague. And it's always going to be something that will require nuance and uh, fine tuning for every patient. So we have spent time trying to figure out what is the expected path down the middle. If you're doing a surgery and you're attempting to correct or cut out a, a, a tumor of some such, what is the most common way that's going to happen? And that's how we get to those things like, oh, we had the correct angle with while allowing for somebody to come in and say, I don't do it that way. I want to do it differently. And when you're doing physical actions, those are a lot easier to interpret than psychological therapy. Right. And I'm really fascinated by the stuff that you've been talking about doing around modeling personality and starting to collect metrics on what is the personality model and maybe even talking about which personality models fit best against the evidence as we immerse people in virtual reality and, and perhaps capture biometric evidence of how they're responding to different therapies. And, and I don't know these models. So we have model A of personality and model B of personality. And when we put, when we try to somebody, try to expose somebody to exposure therapy A, and we're monitoring their pupil dilation and heart rate, they right. are responding better than model, model of the personality B exposure. That I'm clearly not well-versed in yet, but it's a ex very exciting field that will allow us to really move forward with just whole notion of therapy and virtual reality. There's a lot of baseline characteristics that we can explore with VR, within psychiatry, and what maybe is useful for where we're at in the field. There's a lot of benefit we can have from having assets, whether they are even static, having assets mm -hmm. in a scene. There's a person I'll talk about in the podcast 
Dr. Jessica Stone. She is a psychologist who made a play therapy program with her husband just in the garage. They made this great program. In the beginning, when I saw her program for the first time, it was mostly static assets. And she talks to them about what are they feeling? And even at that level of having something visual to see, there's a lot you can explore from a, from a psychological standpoint, because a lot of it is happening inside their mind. I think right. the big benefit for VR is there's therapies out there like psychomotor therapy for PTSD, where you literally just have a group of 30 people at a group therapy session for PTSD, and they have to pick out people in the group to be people in your trauma. It's almost like improv with group therapy in the sense that you pick out this person, okay, this is your father, this is your mother, this is that aunt that you didn't like, or you'll have objects that you pull up. And then the therapist or the psychiatrist up at the top is this witness who's there, gives the lines, tells people to reflect when they need to reflect the challenges. It's not like they're going to look as similar as what you could potentially get in a virtual environment, which may elicit that memory. I think that brings up a really interesting point, and that is how much verisimilitude is the right amount for therapy? Does it have to look exactly like your dad? Or in many cases, maybe it's the voice that's important. Or maybe it doesn't have to look a thing like your dad. It can look like anybody else. Maybe it doesn't. And then the question of should this avatar be in virtual reality in a completely contained virtual environment, or should it be an augmented reality where you have an actor with an overlay that looks like your father Ooh. sitting in a room? You know? That's interesting. And so like you could create these markers in a real room and, and put on an augmented reality helmet and say it makes a very different experience because when you feel when you're in a real room if you i know you've been in both ar and vr right when you're in a real room and something appears to be in the room with you there's for me a lot more emotional impact than being in a virtual room where something right. appears to be in it with me so like how much of that is useful can we use that maybe that is another maybe moving to ar is actually part from VR to AR is part of the therapy. Like you're yeah. not ready for the AR experience. We'll put you in the VR experience now. And yeah. well, how do we do, how do we manage the whole care up, care plan? I think that's a really interesting point. And your question about verisimilitude, what's interesting about Skip Rizzo's work and the others that have been in PTSD mm -hmm. for 30 years, they were getting responses from veterans when it looked not very similar to real life. Mm -hmm. They had an Xbox version of essentially a, a battlefield. I don't even know if, how exactly similar the battlefield would have been to someone else who had unidentified bomb that blew up, mm -hmm. but it probably wasn't the same exact place. It's just a bomb. I predict, and I'd be interested to see if Skip agrees, the severity of the illness will probably mean an inverse to their threshold. So if they have a very severe disease, their threshold's very low, we can use things that are very general, in which case that's technically very achievable. And if it's very mild or moderate, they might be able to be so cerebral with it. It's hard to do without it being very similar. And, and I don't know, that's just a hypothesis. All right, so we're back from that conversation. Another great take from Brian. And just to add a little bit more info around those questions that we were talking about, the research that Dr. Skip Rizzo and others in his field have looked at as they transition into civilian-based PTSD, they've made some programs that instead of attempting to do a specific trauma for every one of those participants, it is a overall program related to that area. So a dark alleyway where you would walk down that alleyway with a non-playable character will follow you as a stalker. I would love to hear Skip Rizzo or Barbara Rothbaum or uh, Joanne DeFiti and all the other experts in the PTSD field of VR therapy to really know what they think that 
evidence is showing them or just their thoughts on the matter. Research will be needed to see how much data from outside the clinical evaluation will be needed to achieve a therapeutic result. The tricky thing here is that we don't know how much improvement we're going to see in a personalized VR therapy program versus a stock program. So you'll have to really play around with the, the sample size to be able to know how much signal you're going to see between groups. And again, I think the experts in this field will be the best ones to give a judge for what would be a reasonable effect size between something personalized and not personalized. The most provocative question I can think of in this life story perspective is the ethical question of whether we should be creating virtual memories at all. Let's get back to the bereavement example. I'll have a link in the show notes to a Korean TV show called Meeting You that tries to help relatives reunite with a deceased loved one to say goodbye one last time and attempt to gain some closure. The production company partnered with Vive Studios, a VR development company, to create a virtual version of a woman's seven-year-old child who died from a rare disease, possibly a subtype of lymphoma. The child died in 2016, I believe, and then the, the production company made this in 2020. The cost of this setup was high, had to been half a million dollars to make. They had professional designers who made all the items that were a favorite to the, for that child. Her clothes, her sandals, her bed, her frozen decal purse, literally an animated version of My Little Pony that flew around a park, which was the child's favorite park, her favorite food down to the specific colors of rice cakes that she liked. And again, this was in her favorite park nearby. They also had her bed frame in there at one point and they played games they had a professional child actress wear a hollywood quality motion capture suit to get the facial expressions and eye movements just right along with pictures that they were given from the daughter's family the vr director then scripted a birthday that the child never and at the child's favorite park so the mother could have that last play date this was all well developed by a whole team of engineers the entire project took a large team three months to make as a full-time effort. The mother had a high-end wireless VR headset with motion tracking gloves. For a majority of the episode, the mother is crying as she has one last play date and experiences a birthday with a child that she never actually got to celebrate that birthday with. The whole family was right outside the film studio where this is done, watching a TV screen also crying several times throughout. Now, disclaimer, there's... They did consent for this. They did ask that they were interested in this based on their story from the production company. With that knowledge that this was done consenting, the family even had a blog post after completing the episode of this TV show. There are some good things I can say from this experience. The mother, again, was quoted saying that it was a positive experience and that she wanted to have it. From a treatment, not this treatment, if anything, it could be exploitative, but... If there was a treatment perspective here, I did like that the director used the rescripting framework in the dialogue. So with this virtual human daughter, which they had, she when she blew out the candles on her birthday cake, she said she wished her dad would stop smoking. And he recognized that from outside. She asked that her two older siblings get along. 
so they must fight all the time. And for her younger sister to not be sick, I hope that does not mean that she had lymphoma, there was a younger child there, I don't know. And for her mother not to cry for her anymore. The virtual daughter also had a little note for her mother at the end of the episode to attempt to make some closure before I think she flew away as a butterfly. The most challenging part actually for me from a technical standpoint is that the gloves didn't have any haptic feedback and she couldn't actually feel her daughter, which it seemed like she really was trying to grasp and reach and hug the daughter. Again, like I said, haptics, it's going to be a long time, people. It's, I don't know, I'll be an old man, but I think it's going to happen. We'll, we'll fi- they'll figure out something for haptics. I don't know, maybe we need to have Elon Musk Neuralink or something. All right, so this was a polarizing experience for the public. Many wondered if this was causing more harm than good. Even with this re-scripted virtual memory, does that lead to an increase or decrease in symptoms of bereavement? Are there potentially lasting negative effects or are they positive? So let's talk about a clinical standpoint for a second. It really, if this is going to be a positive negative experience, it's going to depend on the psychiatric variables related to the mother. If, if this was adjustment disorder bereavement where this had just happened less than six months ago from the passing of the child, treatment may not be recommended at all. And because many, of, many times that there is some resolution there. If it's been greater than six to 12 months, probably more on the 12 months range, with a continued intense feelings, possibly behavior changes that she might have had what they would call complicated grief presentation. In this case, she had, the child had passed away, I believe, four years earlier. We could hypothesize that she had some persistent negative symptoms and some maladaptive behaviors. Also, when you actually are diagnosed with complicated grief, there's actually a 40 to 6% chance of suicidal thoughts and a few other significant findings. The why I have to say complicated grief is because the gold standard of treatment for that is actually complicated grief therapy. This would include an observation of a person's grief response. So you, you may have some similarities to this that you may be watching or assessing for their reaction when talking about the grief or imagining the grief. And in this case, you actually see the, grief, the grieving process. There's There are things that would still be done like potentially hold a conversation with the deceased loved one or retell the circumstances of the death to help them become less distressed by the images or thoughts of the loved one. In this case, that was definitely done. Or not necessarily the death, which again, this goes to the fact that this was a TV show versus if you were in therapy and and the patient, let's say the, the, the mother felt like it was her fault that her child died. You would need to recreate some of those experiences to see if there's any thought distortions or cognitive distortions around reasons of, of why things came to be. And this resembles some of the work that is done in exposure therapy. However, what is different from what was done in the episode is there's usually also components of coping skills that you would help the patient build, particularly if they have some type of maladaptive behavior that's been created since the loss of their loved one. And a redefining of their life goals. In a way, I think the director did some of that with the note that the virtual daughter made for her mother and also in some of the goals to the family members, such as love for dad not to smoke. But there are definitely more personalized and empowering messages that could be delivered and actually have the mother potentially even come up with those in the process of the virtual therapy. I'm not saying that what could be made in an AI-assisted 
VR therapy program is going to be anywhere near what was done in this TV show. This is at a level that is even higher than what you would find at the best labs in the world that would be studying this for therapy. Really what it is that an AI-assisted program allows for a, just an improvement on what a group of talented de designers and developers can do, and then they can iterate beyond as needed. We just have to somewhat close the gap between the currently impossible world of having everything being customized to having customization at a level that is significant enough to be of any psychiatric use beyond a general generic environment where you might just embed a bit of, of life on top, something more 2D. So we have to just find these bridges and that's what this type of research would be about. The next question is on what is the ethical or the potential acceptability of taking home such a program, these virtual memories. So we likely need to have conversations with ethicists about a lot of this work, but it would be technically possible to take something like a complicated grief therapy program and have that a lower end version of it brought home to the patient's consumer headset. But that would not likely be indicated. It's very likely that for complicated grief therapy, you'd want the sessions to be only done in the sessions with the provider. And if you were to take this up a notch in what might happen in the consumer world, someone gets divorced and has a very challenging divorce where lots of emotions are, are being had and that leads to grief in and of itself, it would not be recommended that person then spend their nights with a virtual version of their ex-partner where they might have rescripted their language saying that they didn't want to end the relationship. That wouldn't be healthy, wouldn't be recommended. And again, this is why I think we should have an, a medical ethicist. It definitely should have a patient advocate when we're thinking about this type of work and this type of research. No one wants to build a black mirror type of episode around virtual reality therapy, and we need to be careful of that. However, there is a disease that's an a disease that is very much specific to the life story that would benefit from an at-home VR program, and that would be PTSD. With PTSD, you could have a version, maybe it's either just a recording of what was done in the VR therapy world or something, of course, interactable would be nice that for their long-term results, they could have the ability to go back to these rescripted life stories or these virtual memories and use them to help prevent relapse or to maintain re uh, remission. And that I could see that being very positive from a clinical standpoint. PTSD, given its complexity, its challenges, particularly complex PTSD where you've had repeat traumas in your life and especially those that might have happened in the formative years of life, what are ways that we could decrease the harm and it maybe improve the benefit of these, of these programs? Sadly, some individuals have gone through such graphically terrifying events in their life and have had sometimes monsters that have been in their life that much of the details may not be needed to, to add to the simulation to ensure a lasting effect. There's numerous ways to go about shifting the challenge or the, the issues that may come up, the emotions that may come up, and the content. 
This is also why I think that we should have multiple labs working on this type of research at a time. And, and quite honestly, I do think that the legends in the field or the, the, the founders in the field of this type of research, like I said, Skip Rizzo, Barbara Rothbaum, Joanne DeFiti, and many others, they would have great knowledge about this. But things that I could think of right now would be you could limit the amount of content in the scene where you might just have a couple key items and the rest be a fairly generic scene around the patient. Another one is switching between scenes. So if you're going to have a life story, you would have multiple scenes. And maybe there's ones that's deeper, closer to the root or the catalyzing event, the most egregious trauma. And then there would be things that are more a milder version or other trauma events that were a little less or even a safe place that you could switch between. There's also the fact that you could pixelate certain situations, although I don't know if pixelation is necessarily going to help depending on how much of a triggered response you're getting. And we probably have to also be assessing biometrics. So heart rate variability during these types of, during these types of rescripted virtual memories. The combination of MDMA or ecstasy with VR for PTSD, severe PTSD treatment, I think that's a fascinating combination that we're going to, that several are starting to explore right now. One, it might help decrease the stress induced by the worst of the trauma, so you'll are able to actually simulate those and then Two, because this is extremely early days for AI-based VR development, and the patient may be more willing to take what is, even if it wasn't as close to what was for virtual memory. It may cause them to have struggles with those emotions and thoughts that they would have had if they were not on that drug or things were more advanced. I know a colleague down at Emory, Dr. Barbara Rothbaum, who's looking into starting a study using ecstasy or I should say MDMA with VR and I'm excited to see what she's able to uncover. During my time at Hopkins I hope to learn more about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy though the most frequently uses of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy alone is all you need. There might be a population that you could stratify within based on baseline measurements. Potentially those that may even have a very hard time with imagination or mentalization. Okay now I'm going to go into the dimensional perspective in VR, when it has an impact on the actual 3D content. So the per dimensional perspective is overall more of a guide, but there are probably some specific situations where you could have a dimensional variable that would actually somewhat change the actual 3D content in the VR simulation. So this perspective probably just has a few of them that I can currently imagine. And in one case, it would be intellectual disability. So with intellectual disability, having a large number of 3D objects, so if, even if you could make a full farmer's market in Fells Point, I'm, I'm living in Baltimore now, and you could have multiple different human interactions speaking to someone, trying to engage with you, or forcing them to try to do the math on making some type of purchase, purchasing an item, a vegetable at the market. Decreasing the amount of stimulation may help you as you build up to the amount of stress that they can handle. So there is the nice thing about virtual reality is you could actually titrate the amount of stimulation in that scene. And, or you could just simplify the environment down and into a, a very a generic world, a generic scene with just the one person. 
Hopefully this will decrease the level of agitation, although you'll want to increase it because when they leave the virtual world, they're now in base reality, which is as complicated as it's going to be and you don't have the ability to control that. This is a bridge to what you'll have to build up to or just to see what is that max irritation and then helping that patient avoid those circumstances altogether, unless there's a coping skill they can bridge to. Overall though, I think of dimensional perspectives are more so affecting the rules of the game or the program, maybe the objectives that the, that the content needs to achieve and also as a guide to your virtualist or your VR therapist. Each patient lives across this range of several variables, but there are situations where it's potentially not the primary concern. I'm not saying that all of these need to be virtualized at this stage that I want to virtualize everything in my head, but quite honestly, many of these can be just a conversation. We should virtualize things that are difficult, that the patient has difficulty imagining. Talking to a patient in real life might be all you need unless they have several defense mechanisms or lack of protective factors. If you look at the DSM, a large portion of diagnoses have some form of psychotherapy or psychosocial intervention. There are and will be virtual reality versions of those interventions. But the likelihood that a patient will complete those interventions is in part related to their personality. The big five personality have an impact on someone's likelihood of getting through psychotherapy. And many times during psychotherapy, even or any psychosocial intervention, you will treat or accommodate for a person's personality trait during that process of that therapeutic alliance or therapeutic interaction. I'll have links to some fantastic podcast episodes that dig deep into the big five personality model, which has the most evidence for of any personality model as it relates to psychotherapy. A VR program could guide a patient towards a healthier part of that dimensional perspective, depending on the range of improvement available to that patient. When I say range of improvement, I mean that there are certain patients who might be so far on one end of a facet or whole domain of personality that it's not likely that they'll be able to make a large improvement. Two standard deviations versus half a standard deviation is half a standard deviation being more reasonable. If the challenge the patient is facing is too great, you would just want them to avoid the situation, which may or may not need an immersive guidance session. If you have someone who is three standard deviations away from the mean for introversion, it's, it is statistically unlikely that they're going somewhere to the mean. You know that you have probably about a half standard deviation, maybe a whole standard deviation over a lifetime of therapy, and that would be a huge achievement. Hopefully that reaches some point where you can, they're able to do what they want in their life at a much less provoked state. All right, I'm going to try to my best to attend to some of the research questions in this section. What kinds of VR simulations would be needed for this perspective? So this goes back to that 3D content and the ability that you would have to make specific 3D content related to the dimensions. If the dimensional perspective does come out as a primary concern for the patient, there are several ways that a VR program could help. In the case of education about a vulnerability that the patient has, one could use virtual embodiment that would allow you to see life from that patient's perspective in the case of, let's say, a family member that's supporting that patient that may have intellectual disability. Startups like Embodied Labs specialize in this area. 
of showcasing someone's life from that perspective. This also can help the patient to maybe understand something they're having a hard time mentalizing or reflecting on some of their challenges, and they may gain some insight from you know, having a bit of a meta of what is going on in their head. Although most cases of the literature seems to show helping other people, the provider or the family, to understand that perspective. Another is employment skills. So if you look, I have a link to some of Skip Rizzo's work and like we talked about earlier about the virtual humans. And he has done this cutting edge work I actually got to see at the conference several years back with a virtual human that was extremely sophisticated, which you would have this virtual hiring manager do an interview for patients who are autistic. I think it was the, it was a Miami Dolphins player. And I I don't remember the football player's name, but he had a child who had autism. They did this work with Magic Leap, which is a very interesting device from a mixed reality. And so they do these virtual interviews and, and many of the, at least the accounts from the patients that were in this, they found it to be quite helpful to be able to learn things like being able to look people in the eye, being able to communicate when you feel like you're being judged. And so employment skills and psychiatric rehabilitation, occupational rehabilitation are a very important area of the field. And so this is important aspects potentially for some of the dimensional aspects. Another one is anticipating challenges. So somewhat again goes to employment. So managing challenges, you would help people get through a virtual challenging situation where you might want to attempt to to flex their ability in a safe environment and also be able to calculate the improvement with each challenge. The provider as the witness and the therapist as the guide would be able to provide coping skills in these stressful situations. Now coping skills-based VR is something I have had personal experience with and research experience with for the chronic pain area. Lastly, you could also just provide a showcase of how the patient could avoid certain circumstances where you know that it's best for them to just get out of those situations. They're not going to be able to compensate from a dimensional standpoint. And so you need to help them have ways to leave certain situations or guide them in their careers away from certain areas. What we'll need for all of these is developmental studies with patient focus groups and repeat amounts of iteration, probably to get down to individual personality facets, but at the very least, whole domains of personality. All right, so another question I have is, how does this guide the the VR therapist? And what would follow particularly the personality-related issues. When it comes to personality disorders, there's evidence to guide the VR therapist towards starting with individual therapy versus group therapy, and depending on which domain. So if you have someone who has very low conscientiousness overall, they may benefit most from group therapy because it adds to their accountability. If someone has very low extroversion, You would need to work with them individually at first, build up the therapeutic alliance, hopefully build up some skills, and see if you can get them to a point where they'll be comfortable in group therapy. You can switch them to group therapy because they could gain even further progress and the ability to actually interact in a group comfortably, but you couldn't do it right off the bat. You need to also understanding the likelihood that the patient may drop out due to their personality And that's helpful because you need to be able to know how much you need to confront them, how much you need to be able to maybe back off because of the level of agitation they may have, such as, let's say, low, like a high level of neuroticism. Or if they have very low levels of agreeableness, you have to really show them the benefit and value that you could be providing early on or you will lose them. For 
neuroticism as well, you may need to have meditative components. So helping them with reflection, given that some of those facets of neuroticism, it may be quite useful to get that involved. It's also, like I said earlier, there could be high levels of agitation, so you may need to take something slow. You may need to go a bit slower for virtual challenges presented to those with high neuroticism. For someone low in openness, you need to consider concrete procedures, concrete examples that they could follow, not to be too abstract versus things that are very abstract, which can be quite a benefit. If someone is able to be very cerebral, but also very abstract in their thinking, getting something like an art therapy program or Hatsumi, which is another program that's being built by a colleague in, in the UK, that's great when someone has that ability. But if they don't, you need to be very concrete in your examples. For someone high in agreeableness, you may actually need biometric data to help understand if they really are providing you what maybe they really want versus what they're trying to tell you what they think you want because they're attempting to harmonize. Thinking more broadly about that concept of openness, the VR therapist needs to understand symbolism and how to use objects that could be used to help the patient express themselves. There's some great examples of this in the startup world. People like Dr. Jessica Stone, who developed a VR program, play therapy using something products called Virtual Santre, or Sarah, who her company is Hatsumi VR, which is pioneering the use of art therapy within VR. Patients who have a hard time opening up may not be able to work as well in these areas, yet also those who have trouble opening up may benefit because maybe they're now able to express themselves more fully or engage in something that is abstract yet relatable. And someday, hopefully, we'll, we can reliably make a life story that may not even need as much about abstraction. And really, it is based off that individual's personal life. For personality issues, I do think that the homework idea, again, going back to that question of should we have virtual homework assignments or things that they can go back to on their own device at home. I think the dimensional perspective for the most part is it would likely end up being clinically beneficial given that these are defined variables about ourselves. And if there is gonna be continual growth or at least maintaining and not reverting back, probably having something for at-home use is advantageous. Moving on to the behavioral perspective in VR. Overall, I think this perspective will have a large impact on both the setting within the virtual environment as well as its objectives. It's a rich area for exploration, even at a preliminary level, given the wide variety of ways that people describe either the substance they're addicted to, how they deliver that substance, how the person characterizes their own behaviors and the feelings or conditioning that that leads to. Even before we even start to talk about doing VR therapy, a study of the depth of language around that topic. We could add in components of their life story, maybe for the behavioral perspective, the level of things like impulsivity from the dimensional perspective as part of the personality. You could create simulated challenges for those perspectives, as well as digging much deeper into the causes of the drives that they're attempting to heal from. If we try to create theme around different drives, there's multiple reasons why people may have a substance use disorder. 
but there may be an underlying need for oblivion or escape or to feel something different. There might be ways to symbolically represent that. The vast majority of the VR literature for the behavioral perspective is on eating disorders and substance use disorder, particularly nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, and cannabis. Both assessment and treatment related papers have been published. There are a handful of VR papers on gambling disorder, gaming disorder, or insomnia. I have not seen any VR papers focused specifically on kleptomania, pyromania, conversion disorder, self-cutting, or compulsive crime. And I have seen a paper that also discusses in general different types of sexual disorders, but it actually wasn't specifically on paraphilia. Several might benefit from a VR therapy study, we just haven't seen it yet. So within the VR, papers that you look at around addiction related to substances or eating disorders as well, there has been quite a few that go under the umbrella of a term Q exposure. Many addiction theories assume that cravings play a central role in the acquisition and maintenance of substance dependence. Patients are treated with Q exposure consisting of repeat exposure to the setting or smells. The procedure is to attempt to elicit a response until the craving elicited by these cues substantially weakens. With what's been done with cue exposure, I imagine that AI-based virtual reality could help bring that realistic view with different types of descriptions of drugs, different types of triggers, and also what is potentially the reason for drive going deep enough into it to recreate what that emotion or that feeling and that thought was in the process for the patient in the virtual world. For this literature, you could imagine a library of numerous kinds of drugs and then add in scenes for the virtual humans or objects. There's a discrepancy here. If you were to pull up to date, which is one of the physician's primary sources for what is the gold standard or most current standard of treatment for any given condition. What you'll find is eating disorders, the primary page around psychotherapies, it doesn't once list Q exposure as one of the top psychotherapies to attempt with a patient. In there, for the, for, let's say for anorexia, it's family therapy, CBT, specialized supportive clinical management and motivational interviewing. And then for substance use disorder, we have group therapy, individual therapy, or couples therapy. And those can come in different flavors of CBT with different types of subgroups that are specific to substance use disorder. There's addiction counseling, and then there's group-based programs such as 12-step program and peer support. So why is it the Q exposure is not currently being recommended as a first line of treatment on the most popular physician resource, in part because it's only being tested in the clinical setting of the appointment. According to the Society for the Study of Addiction, Q exposures may have limitations that needs to be overcome relating to abstinence. A lot of these studies had small sample sizes, and the attrition rates can be quite high, often a lack of control groups in these studies. They also have lacked the use of moods and drug states. The other theoretical issue related to Q exposure is that the Q exposure is done in the clinical setting and not in the home setting. This is again where virtual reality can help out. You can create these home environments and those of work-related environments that might cause someone to be triggered. Q exposure therapies has had mixed results, which has inspired researchers to investigate the effects of Q exposure therapy delivered through VR. One of the challenges about Q exposure is if you try to teach this inside the clinic and 
then the patient goes home and they have all their original triggers, they may just relapse back. So there's a conceptual challenge about whether you're really truly being able to help someone with the specific things that are initiating them to, to, to seek the substance. Virtual reality may be able to bring those triggers to the clinical office. I will have a paper that you can read over. It's probably great for anyone who's interested in VR mental health, a fairly recent review of the different types of publications within mental health. It will help elucidate where this is having mixed evidence. In sum, although VRQ exposure has proven to be effective in triggering cravings, the results of clinical trials are mixed. If you're talking about VR for eating disorders, it's done in two different ways, either body image dis distortions relative to anorexia and bulimia nervosa, and then uncontrolled eating, binge eating and bulimia. For those with some type of maladaptive body image, a new kind of program that can really only be done with VR is called embodiment therapy. And preliminary evidence for its benefits are impressive. To assess body image distortion, 3D figures of the patient's body are created and presented to the patient, thus enabling the patient to become aware of the body image distortion and to get a more realistic view of the body. To address the uncontrolled eating, cue exposure to eating-related stimuli is used. VR environments stimulate real-life situations and cues, food cues that triggers disordered eating but all of that's a conversation for another podcast if I ever have someone on that's an expert in addiction or if I take a particular interest in that later in my career. We did list that group therapy, particularly for substance use, was helpful. And we talked a little bit about this in the dimensional perspective. There is a VR support group that program called Help Club allows people to discuss issues they've been having in their life. It was developed by good friend Noah Robinson at Vanderbilt. I've been to a, several meetings and I have been impressed by the culture of support that it is developing. At this time, it's for anyone, thus many of its group members are for general peer support for whatever issues they are facing day to day, but it does have a specific recovery meeting each week. And I enjoyed going to that one, the variety of people that are in these programs. At these support groups, I've seen individuals that at least elicit that they are in their you know, 50s and their 60s. Outside of these two types of program designs, there are several other psychosocial interventions that could be used within a virtual environment related to the behavioral perspective. I also would love to see a study where you could include the addition of a psychedelic intervention as that might help for those who have severe substance use disorder. What we need to know for another research question is, which of these VR therapy programs will win out? There has been studies on CBT, studies on Q exposure, studies on group therapy, studies on virtual embodiment. A lot is going on in the addiction space, and we need to see what will win out. And this goes back to part one. We need to have deep observational studies to really assess which of the specific therapeutic procedures and ther therapeutic process measure is actually at play and whether we're even hitting the mark at all. I predict that patients that have body dysmorphia, programs like virtual embodiment with full body tracking will lead to some of the most, either the largest impact on clinical outcomes or the longest or most robust in clinical outcomes. However, much is still needed to be done in Q exposure as well as CBT and then embodiment. Luckily, we'll see research being done for all the different types over the next several years. And then also the rise of this group-based peer support, which has already been shown to have significant evidence, at least in real reality, to make it to the top of the list within up-to-date. 
All right, now we're going to move on to the disease perspective. Several of the major diseases treated within psychiatry have VR studies completed. Back in part two, I discussed examples for this section, schizophrenia and dementia. Schizophrenia, there's been some interesting work on the use of VR to help decrease the severity of concern for auditory hallucinations and also occupational training. There's also been some interesting work for dementia, both in diagnostics and treatments. I have a podcast, The Doctor and the Engineer, where I go into a deep dive for one of the three types of treatments for dementia and VR. There is the exercise-related work, also cognitive stimulation, and then reminiscence therapy to help with psychological symptoms. I'll have a link to a systematic review if you want to see what has been done in the field, psychiatry. The future will hopefully unfold with large randomized controlled trials in all the areas that we see early evidence for and in that attached systematic review. The ultimate goal of this perspective is to cure the disease. This is the greatest challenge that I don't know VR will ever achieve. I believe various VR therapies will improve healthcare in several ways. You could increase access, you could further decrease symptoms, potentially decrease onset of symptom relief, and potentially improve long-term remission. But I predict that outside of maybe one or two programs that may have a potentially novel mechanism of action, I don't predict that hardly any immersive therapeutic program will cure a disease and I base that off of the evidence thus far for psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is a critical pillar of mental health treatment but it all evidence seems to show that it allows for sustained remission in the best case scenario and even in challenging situations it would be to reduce the burden of symptoms but in and of itself is not causing a cure where immersive therapeutics like virtual reality and augmented reality could contribute to the goal of cure is through the combination with other treatments that act through a different mechanism. I have seen study protocols adding VR to non-convulsive brain simulation, and we have already discussed its combinations with psychedelics and MDMA. I'm not sure what future treatments might be able to actually cure a mental illness. But depending on how it's delivered, it might benefit from adding an intervention that is optimized to engage with the mind. Once we have this VR pharmacy, then we can ask questions of integration. How do these comorbid psychiatric illnesses contribute to each other? What is exacerbating about one symptom and one cluster of disease affecting the other cluster of symptoms from another disease? And then how do we create a virtual world that accommodates for both in a beneficial way. The work that's been done right now with integrating psychiatric clinics provides a groundwork of understanding that is key in the integration process. The part for this virtual list of VR researchers to, to think about again is to find ways to represent what it is in 3D manner that is most relatable for your patient. It's likely again going to be a, probably around virtual humans, although you could use non-realistic 3D objects as well as you could be easier for them to open up. However, will a parallel set of VR programs be as efficacious as a single program that we can incorporate all the variables that we useful for a specific patient? There are times when a central theme to drive the presentation of the list of three plus psychiatric diseases, the goal would be to use a virtual medium as fluidly as one could, 
much like they do with a therapeutic conversation between two people um, sitting in chairs. The last question I can think of for this perspective is one of augmentation. I'll be frank with you. What can be done with AI-based VR development is nowhere near what a professional team can do in three months, as we showed with the uh, Korean TV show. Hardly anyone can afford a Vive Studio-level experience on most grants. I would love to see a study using VR within psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, with the caveat that I think most patients probably don't need the combination of VR psychedelics based on the fantastic results they're able to get out of these clinical trials where they just have classical music and a blindfold as the main augmentation in the process of introspection. Part five, I wanna talk a little bit about limitations before I reach the conclusions, as any good research paper should have an understanding of their limitations. Limitation one, I probably don't know enough about psychiatry that I'm likely missing the mark on the complexity of the challenges that are at play. I believe I probably have some idea of what the technology may be used for in the field in the future, but it's an incomplete picture. The second limitation is we may not ever need this because the VR pharmacy may be found to be so effective. Another limitation is the therapist, they may get into a virtual world and still do their version of whatever therapy they were taught. Most psychiatrists, given the amount of expertise you need in the short lifetime that one has, no one provider is able to have expertise in every different type of psychotherapy or even every expertise around pharmacology to fit a patient's complex case. So what happens instead is that you end up having multiple different types of services. These things are done in parallel. I definitely lack enough understanding of artificial intelligence to know their limitations. This type of program may not be as useful in the clinical setting unless you're doing an augmentation with maybe a drug that might decrease a little bit of the expectation. The greatest benefit of using psychiatric formulation for virtual reality may not be in the direct development of a therapeutic program. It might instead be more on selecting patients for different types of interventions. Probably we're going to have a larger body of evidence for predictive value of a formulation before we have something prescriptive value. And that sequence is understandably logically important. Another limitation is that it might just be too soon, is that it may not be useful until we start wearing glasses with our phones, because that's when virtual humans will become more and more important once we're using augmented reality on a daily basis. If you talk to a futurist, they're gonna to say tomorrow or the next year, but if you're gonna to talk to a skeptic about when that might happen, when we're actually, our apps turned into virtual humans, it could be five years or longer. And there's probably also a bias on my part. I've been doing this for the last five years. I'm going to look at the world from a certain perspective. All right, that right, I'm going to wrap up now. It's been a long podcast. I'm not likely to do another episode for some time. I have ideas for another 20 episodes that I may never get to. And there's probably only two episodes that would be important for the future. Again, if any of this sounds interesting, please reach out to me or Brian Dolan. Here's my last question to Brian Dolan, who gives a little bit of info about what you can expect when you engage with him around research. How would you like researchers to engage with your new center? We are opening up the Institute for Translational Artificial Intelligence. And the idea behind that is to allow researchers in a variety of fields to have access to advanced artificial intelligence methods, even if they're not a computational scientist. And so this conversation plays exactly into that, where we have therapists uh, or psychiatrists or psychologists 
who want to explore how AI, XR, uh, and other high-end technologies can help them with their practice. The Institute is going to hopefully officially open in a major center in Los Angeles, which I'm not sure I should name yet, but they've already said yes. But anyway, in August-ish, but right now it's, we're currently operational and we're talking to researchers who have a particular research projects they're working on. We could probably help them write the grants. We've done a lot of grant writing in the past, but it would be great if they came in with their grant already in hand so we can get started immediately. Otherwise, we have to wait 12 months. Yep. Right now, the best way to contact us is, is to go or email me at b at translationalai.org. That is a really interesting, easy way to do it. Or just find me on LinkedIn. I'm Brian Dolan. I'm CEO of Verdant, V-E-R-D-A-N-T pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, but we're really interested to talk to researchers who have uh, a problem out there that where they feel like they're just not getting the math or technology support they need. And that's really one of my passions is to make sure that care is improved for everybody and that these tools shouldn't be locked away by the computational scientists. You can reach out to me if you're building something on your own and you're just trying to find research collaborators. If the particular nature of the perspective model is of interest and you decide on your own to develop a VR program related to individualized therapy, let me know by the time your program is ready for research study, I'll likely have some colleagues at John Hopkins who might be interested in studying the impact of that intervention. We probably have the most documentation in one facility with this type of format and algorithms need to be fed. Thank you for hanging in on this long talk. I'm excited to, to see what the future holds and brings for Mercer Therapeutics. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send them my way, either on LinkedIn or Twitter. And I hope you all have a great day.